Welcome to episode number 146 of CXO Talk. I'm Michael Krigsman, and today I'm so excited because I'm speaking with Stephen Hoover, who is the CEO of the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center. Xerox Park is one of the most venerable research organizations in the world. And I'll let Stephen describe all the the incredible day that were originally developed at Park. And so, Stephen, welcome to CXO Talk. Thank you, Michael. It's good to be here. So, uh, Stephen, just to begin, very briefly, tell us about your background. So you're the CEO of Xerox Park, and how did you get there? But but really briefly. Sure. Um, so um, I uh, uh, have my PhD from Carnegie Mellon, and I've always been very interested in technology um, from a technology side at kind of the confluence of the physical world, computation and computation. And so my research area, technical research background is in applications of artificial intelligence to design tools, um, advanced kind of advanced methods of computer aided engineering and then robotics and mechatronics. And so. And uh, when I finished my PhD, I joined Xerox actually quite a while ago, 21 years ago, and have been in a variety of innovation uh, positions since then. Um, Moving from the research side into product development and delivery and back into the research side and some technology strategy roles. So it's been a really interesting opportunity to kind of live across the whole spectrum of innovation from you know, crazy early ideas that you don't know to work to supporting, you know, 10 million customers with a new product release. So you're a scientist who's now managing scientists and researchers, and I'm assuming some engineers, people with different kinds of backgrounds. Tell us us about Xerox Park. Great. So, um, you know, it is a, it's a really interesting place. And we have a, you know, as you said earlier, a really, I think, a storied history of um, founded in um, 1970 uh, by Xerox, specifically chartered to create the office of the future. And we did some of the foundational work um, in personal computing, the creation of Ethernet, which we actually spun out of here in, in um, and, you know, in 3Com. Um, to the creation of uh, of the graphical user interface and the integration of the mouse um, into that, to what you see is what you get editing, to the invention of laser printing and the commercialization um, of that, um, and you know have continued in that um, in that vein, uh, developing innovations for Xerox's business today, which is much broader than a printing business but is in fact half of Xerox is in the services business. We do uh, transportation um, uh, uh, services for cities um, and other local governments, ranging from um, things like the EasyPass toll system. Many of your users probably use EasyPass to fare collection systems. We do work for healthcare companies in analytics and information uh, uh, management. We do... um, customer care. We answer $2.5 million customer interactions every day, um, as Xerox does. And so at Park, we are um, set up as a wholly owned subsidiary um, to support Xerox by 
developing early stage technologies and innovation to drive into their business. But what's interesting is we're set up as a subsidiary also because we're a P&L uh, in the sense of we're in the open innovation business. So we do that not only for Xerox, but for other clients and, and customers in this world. We were really, we, we, we stepped into this model um, in the early 2000s, focused on open innovation as a business practice. Um, actually, before Henry Chesborough coined the term open innovation in 2003. And it's been a really, it makes this a really um, interesting place, uh, as well as the, you know, the, the business model and that focus on not only some long-term innovation and research, but also how do I drive current business results, you know, from that, putting those, those two together. And then, as I said, doing it in this open innovation business model. So, so what is the relationship that you have with Xerox? It's really interesting that you're an R&D organization that also has a P&L. And so as you talk right. about the relationship with Xerox, what, is that, what does that P&L responsibility imply for you? Right. Well, so we have so we have then two fundamental you know roles for the company. One again is to do early stage innovation and research for Xerox itself, and so we have a relationship that then you know looks like any what what would be the not any but the the, the innovation organizations for large companies that do that well, which means you are um, you know closely working with the business units on their strategy. You're developing technologies and new offerings that extend their current business and take them into, you know, radically new places. You're working with corporate strategy, um, again, to ensure that you are both being influenced by the strategy, but also influencing the strategy about where it needs to go, what technology will enable and what new business opportunities come out of that. And then in addition, we have this role in open innovation where we... Um, Again, many of the early stage uh, uh, technologies that we work, work on are very relevant to people outside of Xerox. So how do we go and find those customers and clients to help them in their business? And then even find relationships that where we may do an early stage innovation work that um, we start to work with an external company and then we bring that company in as a partner for Xerox to extend its offerings. So it's a very, this open innovation is a really um, interesting model. So is, is the reason for having a P&L uh, so that you can self-fund the organization or are there other reasons beyond that? The, the, um, um, it certain, one, one of the reasons is, is absolutely to be able to look at a broader reach of, one of the roles of a, if you are a good innovation organization for a parent company, then what you are doing is developing innovations to support their current businesses, but also innovating in, in new businesses that they're not in today to give them options to expand beyond their current, current markets. Now, it may turn out that um, some of those things aren't the right things for the parent company to um, to take up for a variety of reasons. Um, and then what do you do with those? They may be great ideas, but the parent company isn't the right place to do that. Or it may not be clear in an early stage technology or opportunity what the real opportunity is. So how do you go explore that? Well, you go explore it by creating those opportunities yourself as an innovation center and finding other companies to do it. So it isn't 
One aspect is, yes, it allows us to have a broader set of, of innovation, exploration areas, but doing it in this way, it forces you to do it kind of in the crucible you know, of a market still, even if it isn't clear that the parent company is the right company to take that up or in what form. And so it kind of keeps you honest in some sense in that regard, because you're, you're forced to go out and compete, you know, in that, in that, in that way and, and survive. So yeah, part of it is the funding to be in broader areas, but part of it is, um, um, you know, it's a great crucible to test out new ideas and, you know, new, you know, my experience, long history in innovation, there are three major reasons why significant innovations fail. One of them is the technology isn't right. It's not ready. It doesn't work. But another is um, that you've understood the market wrong. You're not actually solving the problem, um, you know, in a way that um, customers will adopt. And the third is um, that you don't have the right business model, that while you're creating value in the world for those customers, you don't um, you're not able to kind of appropriate value along across the ecosystem to the right people in the right ways so that the, uh, you know, the whole value chain makes money, right? In the end, businesses are going to need to make money to deliver a product successfully to a customer over the long term. And so if you're, if you're not exploring those other two aspects, the market and the, and the business model, then I would argue you're actually not doing a good job of, of innovation. And so this gives us a much broader way to explore those um, you know, to explore those areas. To force you, as you said, into the crucible of uh, market relevance. Steve, we've lost your video. Oh, and I'm not sure. Okay. So can, make sure it's uh, plugged in. If not, we'll we keep going because we have your audio, but it'd be nice to see you as well as we saw you. Uh, Google Hangouts says I'm on and I see myself. So sorry, not uh, sure what the problem is. Okay, well, there's nothing, nothing... Nothing to be done about that. So tell us about research at Xerox, the, the basic research versus applied or product research. Right. So the, the, um, um, one of the, if, if your listeners are, are interested and kind of want to understand this business of applied research, versus uh, basic research and how to kind of think about that in a model. I can refer them to, there's an interesting book and a concept called, what uh, the book is titled Pasteur's Quadrant. And it's trying to capture, um, you know, in a two by two, right? If you're, you know, we, you know, you know, in MBA school, we learned to, you know, describe the world in a series of two by two matrices, right? And this two by two matrices basically, in this case, is articulating that one axis is about how um, um, uh, is about is it about knowledge for knowledge's sake, or is it about um, um, uh, solving a problem? And um, the the other axis um, is about um, how uh, uh, basically the the kind of time horizon over which you're operating. And Pasteur's quadrant is this upper right quadrant where the idea is. It's not so much about knowledge for knowledge's sake, but it is about generating new knowledge and new science because there's a focus area in which you know you need new knowledge and new science to understand the world and then to create things in the world which you know deliver that you know the results that you need. And that's the idea of 
you know, Louis Pasteur, he, he, he was very focused on not just new knowledge, but okay, we have, how do microorganisms work, right? What, what, you know, what is going on in this space and knew that that knowledge was needed to then lead to things like antibiotics and antiseptic, et, et, et cetera. And so we live in, you know, in, in that quadrant and kind of then the, you know, the one below it, which is okay with that new knowledge. Now, how do I actually turn that into a product or a, you know, or an offering? So, so I actually, I described that left axis wrong. It's about that. It's, is it about the, you know, a, a product or offering or about a knowledge and is it about knowledge for knowledge to sake or is it about application? And so we live more on the right-hand side of that and balance between the upper right and the, you know, and the, and, and, and the, and, and the lower right. The, so we do care about understanding and knowledge generation, but generally it's in a focused area where we believe that we can both contribute to the quality of the knowledge and convert over time that knowledge into in innovation, right? And that's one of the distinctions between, you know, an innovation and an invention is an, an innovation is an invention that's solving a problem, right? That, that, that people care about. And, and in the end, we are about innovation, right? But to do that, we do good science in those focused areas. And that's the balancing act that you, that, that, that I think you've got to walk. And a lot of the more pure basic science, understanding the world, right? you know, string theory, those types of things, that is more in, a, in, academic, uh, in an academic environment. And what are the research areas or the innovation areas that Park is focused on right now? Excellent. Yeah. So we've got um, um, uh, uh, five core areas. One of them is, um, uh, you know, a lot of people are focused on, um, big data analytics. And, and, and we certainly are as well, because right. The, you know, the amount of data in the world and the sense making that you can make out of it is um, really uh, uh, it is absolutely one of the forefronts. One of the things that we try to do is bring a unique perspective to that, which actually ties back to our history. And so I call it human centered big data. Um, And, and what I mean there, and I'm going to start with an analogy, right? So, so one of the things, as we described earlier that park did it, you know, in our foundational days is we looked at computing technology and we made it so that people, average people can use it, the personal workstation, that you don't need to be a computer programmer or an expert. And we were able to do that because we understood how work got done in an office, right? And this is, again, one of the values that Xerox brings to, you know, to the market today. Xerox talks about Work can work better, very focused on the job that a person is doing. And our role is then to understand the jobs that people are doing and how technology can help make them get that job done. And in a way, again, that is easy for the person to adapt. So, for example, one of the one of the things that we're doing today is um, in the support of uh, Xerox. Xerox, as I articulated earlier, has a significant business in, in customer care. Right. So um, 2.5 million customer interactions daily. Well, how can we learn over all of those interactions, which is a more likely problem to solve, a more likely answer to a problem a customer has? And how can we do that in a way, you know, you've got today capabilities where computers, you know, automated chatbots, right? You're, You're chatting over the computer and on the other end is a is um, is not a person initially but a computer agent. Well, 
it turns out that computer agents are pretty capable, but there's a place where they run out of knowledge, right? And, and what you don't want to do is tick off the customer on the other end because you've got this kind of what starts to become apparent is this stupid agent asking them stupid questions um, and not really resolving their problem. So we're developing technologies to actually have dialogues and monitor that dialogue. Is the person getting frustrated? Are they, does the conversation seem to be regressing? And if not, how do you seamlessly hand that call over to a live agent in a way that nobody even knows and can detect? But all of a sudden, there's a person on the other end answering the question because the computational agent has run out of its ability to solve the problem. And so this idea of, again, um, human-centered big data, and here the human is you know, both sides of that equation, the end customer, right? So really understanding their state of mind, what are they doing? And then the call center agent, and how are you helping them um, um, you know, take over that, that, that call? And then, as I said, actually using that as a learning opportunity. Now we watch what the customer care agent, the human does to solve the problem. We take that data and through machine learning, make our diagnostic algorithms better for the next time. And so thinking of this, I, you know, I personally think there's a kind of a really big uh, kind of, I think there is a big idea in here that is there's a lot of focus on pure automation and that's good and it will happen. But as you, as computers become more and more capable, you're reaching this point where we're going to have human computer teams solving problems. And how do you interact together to come up with a better answer? And there's a lot of science in that. There's a lot of technology in that. Um, I can give your, you know, your listeners an example is it used to be that humans were the best at chess in the world. And then Artificial intelligence technologies came along and computers beat the best humans in the world. Big surprise, you know, a little over a decade ago to, to, to many people, to many chess players. Well, who are the best computer players, chess players today? Human computer teams. Literally, you take a person and a computer and they work together because computers are really good at kind of deep, fast search, evaluating all of these alternatives but they're not the best at kind of what's the high level strategy. So human may thinking about three or four strategies, the computer investigates those three or four strategy, tells the human likely outcomes, the human therefore picks the next strategy and they play back and forth in the cycle. And that's what is the best chess player today. And we're going to see work happen more and more in that way. And so we have a significant investment in this whole area of, 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 of machine learning, empathetic computing, understanding, again, what's people's intents and behaviors and how do I help them? So a core foundation of what you're doing is this notion of making of simplicity and making the problems applicable so that people in ordinary offices can make use of these technologies. Exactly. Work can work better. And, 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 and it's about the, so it's interesting. You talked earlier and, you know, about we, there are definitely at, at the park, we have a large number of, 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 of scientists and engineers in the physical sciences, you know, and in, you know, electrical engineering, and chemistry. but we also have social scientists, cognitive psychologists, people who are experts at conversational analysis, ethnographers who go out and understand and observe again, as people are doing a job, 
what is the real job they're doing and what are the things that are hard and easy about it and what would help them best? And there's a whole, so, so recognizing again, you know, you got it dead right that this is about how do we do this simply in a, and in ways that stick with people that actually they can use requires that kind of deep understanding uh, there as well as, you know, design thinking and those types of things. But, but it's more than that. There's an actual science um, 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 into that. And then, and then we do work in the areas, again, of modeling cognitive processes of people, right? How do people think? Um, um, we have some very interesting work in, 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 in those areas, particularly around human behavior. You know, we, we all have this experience. One of the hardest things to do is to change yourself, right? Um, uh, you know, be it, I want to eat less, I want to exercise more, whatever that is. Um, there's an actual science of how change happens. And, 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 you know, people, a lot of people are saying, you know, we're going to build apps to, you know, monitor your food use and kind of be the nanny on your shoulder telling you what to do. That's not enough. You actually have to, again, understand how people do change behaviors and then build those artificial intelligent agents and chatbots to, provide the suggestions and advice to people in a way that actually sticks. And so, for example, we've gone out and it turns out one of the best ways for, for people to, to make changes in their lifestyle is a coach. And, um, you know, we've gone out and done ethnographic studies of how coaching works. Why does that work? And then how could you um, provide the same and, and coaches are very sensitive and they're very dynamic, right? watching how you're behaving, how do you respond, and then giving you the right nudge, you know, and are you a person, you know, some people respond more to, you know, hey, why don't you try harder, and some people respond more to, hey, that was a great job, right, and a good coach knows which you are and picks that up and kind of tunes their message and styling to you, so again, how do we have um, competition agents who determine your personality profile and address you in that way, and and there's a lot of science and research we're doing in those kinds of areas. I spoke yesterday with a woman named Julia Hu, who is CEO of a company called Lark Technologies, which is actually working in precisely this area you were describing of coaching. So they take sensor data from uh, phones and then they take human experts and they deliver it through a, an app, deliver the coaching through an app. So it yeah. sounds like... This is a similar kind of area. Yes, and 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 a, a very similar area. And then, how do you engage, um, you know, people's social network, right, um, into this in a in a fruitful way? And and again, there's some science there about what makes good teams, right? How how to build a a a, a social circle to help in this case that is again the right mix of people and the right um, kinds of things. And and yes, how do you create you know, AI agents who can perform some of the coaching, uh, 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 some of the coaching capabilities. Uh, you, it's dead, that's dead right. And it's interesting, right? We're doing this for a variety of reasons. I mean, it's actually very relevant, um, as I said, uh, for, for, for Xerox, as well as some of our customers outside Xerox. Um, we do a lot of work today with um, healthcare companies and helping them kind of manage their um, uh, uh, information processes and more and more information is, uh, you know, about their patients. What are they doing and how are they behaving? And, and so we see uh, moving from not only kind of managing the digital flow of information inside the enterprise, but helping then 
enter, health enterprise organizations serve their clients more directly. I mean, it's very, it's, it's, it's there, as everybody becomes more and more connected, I think there are fewer and fewer B2B companies and everybody in some sense becomes a B2B to C connected customer because your again, Xerox is more of a traditionally a B2B business, but as our customers, our business customers are connected to their customers in real time, which we all are when we're a connected world, we all become a B2B to C company. And so that's part of the progression that we're on. So as you're dealing with these future of work issues, you're talking about technologies, but at the same time, there's just as much a cultural and human and social set of dimensions. And you, so you must be addressing those as well. Yes. And, there, and um, there are kind of two sides to that. And let me try, uh, um, you know, and one is, you know, inside our own innovation environment, right? So, so, one of the things that um, we really um, uh, uh, value at Park is we think a lot of innovation comes from multidisciplinary work, which kind of makes sense, right? Because, okay, there's a well-understood area, a field, a silo, a technology, and you make progress in that field. And then there's another one. And if you can connect the two in interesting ways, then, you know, that's a white space. Uh, uh, you know, it's a new opportunity. And so I've talked about, you know, well, there's a lot of focus on big data and on what computers can do. And we're saying, well, but wait, it's also about what people, how people learn, how they think, and, you know, marrying those two together. And so one of the cultural things we try to do is to leave space for people to explore those white spaces. Um, because I think that's a key piece of innovation. The other piece is, is you know, a lot of ideas when you start out, they don't, it's not clear where they're going or that they make sense. And, and, but some of them will. And if you try to kind of narrow down and control those too early before people have had the time to experiment and figure that out, then you're going to miss a lot of innovation opportunities. On the other hand, you know, if you just keep pursuing a bad idea, well, you're wasting everybody's time and money. And so there's this real balancing act about how do you give people enough freedom to kind of explore something at the beginning that doesn't, it's not clear that it makes sense, but they've got to have the kind of ability to go and figure, you know, figure, figure that out. And, and, and you've got to let people be, you know, uh, you got smart people who can think out of the box, you know, you got to let them be a little crazy every now and then and 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 if you try to turn this too much into a um you know tops down process you're going to end up in a you know in a in a in a place that's not very innovative so there's this real balancing act between how do you set kind of some large strategic goals and then how do you give people the white space um to innovate but then how do you find the good ideas from the bad ones and kind of invest more in those. And so there's a, there's a, there's a whole art to that. So how do you heard the, her, her, how do you heard the, the genius set of cats inside that crucible of the market reality to produce something that's absolutely great? Well, and, and the other, I'll push even, I'll push on you a little bit is, yeah, that's a piece of it, but how do you let them hurt you? It, it, you know, it isn't one way. I mean, I, 
I don't know where all the right places to go are, right? I've really gotten excited. I mean, you heard me earlier about this kind of idea of human computer teams, you know, because some people here, they started to, you know, and it, it does resonate with some things inside of me, as I said, that I see a strong value in this idea of connecting humans and technology and solving their problems together. And, and again, that's, a, that's, a, that's just a, a core piece of who Park is, but, but framing it as this idea of human computer teams, right? That's not something that I came up with. That's the cats who herded me, right? And, and they start to talk about that way. And I say, that's an interesting metaphor, right? I mean, some level it's a metaphor, right? But, but metaphors are powerful because they give you different ways to think about things. And so when you start to think about that that way, that's a different way. So it's not only how do you herd those cats, but how do you get herded? you know, if in a way, and that's a really important piece. And and if you want people who are innovative, you've got to be open to that. I mean, you know, or they're going to go, you know, somewhere else where people will stop and think differently, right? If I can't think differently after some of the people who are working here have new ideas, then you better fire me um, because I'm not going to get the job done. So it's it's a two-way street. So being adaptable, so you yourself being adaptable in terms of what you are doing, and I'm assuming also in terms of the, the, the strategy of the organization to some strategy extent. Of the organization. What are the, you know, the technical directions, as I said, is this, this kind of whole framing around, you know, human computer teams is a, you know, it's a relatively new framing. And I think, again, one that it, it's, it's differentiated and valuable, right, which is what we ought to be, you know, what we ought to be doing. What about some other areas? Uh, such as the Internet of Things or automation and robotics. I know you're doing work in, in areas such as that. So, so talk about yeah. that a little bit. Yeah. So the um, couple of different ways into that. So, so certainly the, um, the, the Internet of Things we see as um, the analogy that I make for people. It's a really important trend. And, and for people who haven't kind of thought about it deeply but have heard about it, I think this is a useful analogy. If you think about it, you know, one of the things that Google and search has done for us is it has infinitely expanded the capacity of the human memory, right? I don't have to memorize all the facts in the world. I can go out and look them up and find it. If I want to learn about um, – um, uh, reinforcement learning, you know, I go and Google it and I find the Wikipedia article and I, and I, and I, and I learn about it. So it's expanded my brain, my memory to be, you know, of nearly infinite capacity, right? That I can quickly and easily, right? Find that new information and integrate it when it's relevant to me on a problem. The analogy I want to make for, for, for you and your listeners about the internet of things is it's about Googling reality. It's about right now, my body, right? My body is the sensor, right? I see things, I hear things, I sense the world around me. Well, why does that have to be geosynchronously and, you know, it has to be, why does it have to be synchronous in time and space with where I'm at, right? Which is what my senses normally are, right? There, you know, I sense something at the time it occurs and it has to be near my body. Well, the Internet of Things says, no, it doesn't. I want to understand the state of pollution in Beijing. I go and find it on the Internet, Right. So this idea of kind of expanding your body, right? And now, you know, take that idea, and that's for an individual, not for an organization, right? I can instrument and understand what, my, what customers are doing with my products across the world now, 
I can understand, are those machines, you know, are those uh, devices starting to fail? I can understand the environment that they're in and, and adapt their behavior to, to be responsive to the local environment, right? You know, GE and their jet engines. When a plane's running into a headwind, you know, run the jet engine differently because I know I'm in, that, I'm in that situation. And so this idea of the Internet of Things, and then you couple it with the, the, the data analytics and the machine learning, right, so I can make sense of all of that data. Right. Again, to get a job done. What's the what's the problem you're trying to resolve uh, 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 there? And, you know, in our case, you know, we we, um, you know, for Xerox, um, we put up, again, transportation systems, cameras, where our car is going. We're, we, we, you know, we uh, as I talked about easy pass, that's an Internet of things. You put a you put a little transponder in your car. It senses it goes by. It knows it's you. It charges your credit card. But now, why do I even have to put the transponder in the car? I'm going to have a camera up there take a picture of your license plate because computers can see. And now I can see how many cars go by and I can help cities understand how to manage traffic better. I can have a, you know, there's cameras all across cities for a whole bunch of reasons now. I can be looking at parking and helping people find where's the open parking space. Connected cars, cars drive by. You know, how many cars today, right? I think it's a regulation either today or next year that all cars will have a backup camera. Well, you're driving down the road, your camera's seeing where there's empty parking spots. How do I get that information and direct people to the open parking spot to optimize, again, you know, the capabilities for uh, for people to get the job done they're doing? And and so so in our view, that's the power of kind of the Internet of Things, and, and you're going to capture that power. So then from a technology viewpoint, where are we working? One is those analytics to kind of optimize outcomes and behaviors. Um, another, we have a significant investment. I talked about our foundational work with the creation of Ethernet. Um, we have a totally radically new networking technology called content-centric networking that really deals with two things, the explosion of information that is occurring and is just going to radically increase with the Internet of Things because now if I can Google reality, imagine all that data. And, and the reality is the current Internet protocols aren't designed to handle that kind of qual- uh, quantity of data. And the other piece is we all know the security. It's not built into the network. It's an add-on, and so contract-centric networking is a technology that builds security inherently into the network and therefore is, it, it, it is much more secure. And then the third area for us is the, to, the Internet of Things, I talked about a lot of it, is it's sensing the world. How do I do low-cost, highly distributed sensing? If I'm going to put the things on the Internet, if it takes me – if it takes, uh, you know, $100 to put, uh, uh, you know, a smart computer on a bottle of uh, 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 vaccine to measure its temperature during its shipping, well, I won't do that. But we're working on technologies in areas like printed electronics. How do I make very low-cost electronics that are smart enough? Silicon, it's got cheaper and cheaper to put more and more transistors. You know, my... My iPhone is the power of a Cray supercomputer from 1996, and I can buy it for 200 bucks with my 24-month plan. But if I want to put a temperature sensor on a bottle of vaccine, like I said, for 50 cents, the reality is I don't need a whole lot of intelligence. 
and it's gotten cheaper with silicon to cram more and more intelligence. But what I want is a whole other price point down at that dollar smart label sensor that I can put out and, and sense those things. So we have a whole focus area in printed electronics because we think that's the internet of everyday things. And we have a set of partners in that area. And we are also working with Xerox, you know, to take some of those initial technologies to market. How does this actually work? How do you, so do you have projects with commercial companies or how does, what are the mechanics of that? We have, um, uh, so sort of our open innovation business. So the mechanics of this are, yes, we have, we have, we have two kind of, three kind of classes of, well, four classes of kind of open innovation models. I mean, one is a pure kind of collaboration, right? We're, we're working in an area We'll go out and find a university or a commercial company who's got capabilities in this area, and we kind of form an agreement to team and kind of, I'll solve this part of the problem, you solve that part of the problem, we'll share and compare information. Um, and that's kind of the classic way that a lot of open innovation happens, and, 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 and by and large, at most companies, it means with universities. Um, the, the, the different thing that we do is we also go out and... Um, um, we do a fair amount of early stage, high risk um, research under government funding because it turns out that the government is willing to fund and has a process to fund a fair amount of high potentially high value but high risk longer term research and technology development. So, so we go get research contracts with um, uh, DARPA, if you're familiar with them, the kind of, a, you know, far out, the, the crazy the crazy wing of the Defense Department research, right? We don't do any classified work, but um, and, but a lot of what they do isn't classified because they're trying to, again, just uncover new, new, new areas. We do work with um, the National Institutes of Health. We do work with the Department of Energy um, in those areas. And then we also work with commercial clients where we are helping them um, innovate in new spaces. And that'll take two kind of forms. Sometimes it's a problem that they have and it's, and we co-ideate with them. How could you solve that problem? We'll generate ideas, generate a product, a project out of that. We have a whole process for this. Again, kind of our history and innovation. There is a, there's a way to approach that initial stage of ideation. And we, we work with them and, and develop that. And then you know, if we find a good idea, they'll partner with us, you know, fund us to do the uh, forward um, uh, looking research and innovation in those areas. And sometimes it's, again, innovations that we've already developed, be it on government funding or other sources where we're taking, you know, we're partnering with them to take that um, 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 to market. I can give some examples if that would be useful for you. Well, you know, we've only got about five minutes left and okay. I, I wish we had another hour, but maybe tell us about automation and robotics. What are, what are you doing with respect to that? Right. So a lot of um, the, uh, our focus comes in two ways. And one is um, ties very much to, as I articulated today, kind of half of Xerox's business is in a, is in a document and information intensive business processes. And so there, you know, there's what we call robotic process automation, which basically is looking at current workflows and work streams that are not automated and how do you automate them in a digital world, right? So this isn't 
physical world automation. This is digital automation. It takes the characteristic of the analytics and things that I, I, I talked about. And again, automating customer problem resolution. Um, um, and so there's a whole focus in that area. In terms of the automation in the physical world, we're focused on, um, and, and this is one of those areas where we're kind of in advance of where Xerox's current business is, but I think there's some interesting long-term opportunities for it. It's what we call um, um, systems of systems. So you're going to see that, so, so here we're doing some interesting work with the Defense Department about, um, um, you know, what, a past example that, that I can talk about we've done is satellite swarms, which is basically the idea is, Right now, we build one big satellite and send it up in space. And if that satellite is really expensive and if it fails, you're done. What if instead I could build a, a series of small satellites that were all individually redeployable but controllable in some coordinated way? So I can, you know, it, it's a swarm of 50 satellites, small and cheap. Well, if one dies, that's okay. When I want a lot of imagery on a certain place, I only aim 50 at, those, at the same place. When I don't, I, I, I distribute them. And there's a whole challenge of, basically, if you think about it, you've got this complex system, and you're trying to redesign it constantly during its use because you're trying to have it do different things as pieces fail and don't fail, multitask, again, to look at different problems, to sense different things. And so there's a whole science around kind of AI planning and thinking of how do you manage that system of systems. The, the other piece of it is back to my human and computer team. In the end, those systems are being tasked by a human. How does a human interact with that level of complexity and manage it and help the, 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 the system, which has local autonomy, understand what the human, the, the task the human is trying to perform and coordinate and adapt together. And so we're working in, you know, in, you know, in, in, in that space. And, and I think this is, you know, it's, think about it as, you know, the Google autonomous car. Well, what do you do when you've got a thousand autonomous cars on a road and how do they behave together and how do they behave with the humans who interact them? So we're at that system level of the, of the problem. And we think that's where the kind of the next wave of complexity as automation occurs, it's going to be, systems of systems interacting and the science and again the interactions with people are we think really interesting problem spaces so a core part of your activities it sounds like are this notion of where the person and the computer come together and how does the person accomplish something of value using the computer and manage uh, and have the computer be structured and the user experience be structured so that the human can manage that complexity. Exactly. Exactly. And there's a whole set of science again around that, that some people say, Oh, that's design. No, it's more than design, right? It, it, you know, it's again, how do I understand how does a computer build a model of the world that's a shared model with the human? Because again, there's assumptions that we, you know, you and I have a conversation. There's a lot of implicit assumptions that we share and those evolve over the conversation. How do I do that? Again, understanding, are you a pessimist or an optimist? Are you a realist? And how do you take information in better? Um, and, um, and, and what is the best way to split the task that, again, leverages the strengths of computers and, and people? 
as computers become more capable, that becomes even more important and, 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 and harder. And how do you, um, uh, you know, leverage that? So there's a whole host of scientific and technical challenges in there that we're um, investigating. Wow, it's a fascinating conversation. Steve, as we go, as we, as we leave, unfortunately, our time is, is just about up. What advice do you have for organizations who want to innovate? Maybe they're stuck with their traditional processes and having resistance and pushing back. Folks in those organizations, how can they do a better job of pushing innovation? The biggest, um, so I'll, I'll tell you, the two biggest things that I see that, that, that people struggle with are, um, one is this idea of, 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 of risk. Exploring new areas and ideas is inherently risky. And so much of our business process in the where you're about delivery of something is about risk avoidance. And in innovation, you need to do the exact opposite. You need to embrace risk, you know, not because risk is good, but because the reward that comes with solving that problem is valuable. And then, you know, as I said, it's, it's, it's not about risk avoidance. I said earlier, there's three kinds of risk, technical risk, market risk, business model risk, wherever the biggest risk is, how do you create an experiment to uncover is that risk Risk means I can't predict the future to predict what is going to happen or to design the system to, you know, to uh, uh, so that that risk doesn't come true. So there's this weird mentality shift of of embracing risk and then agile learning processes around that risk. The other piece I would say is is the hardest thing for existing businesses to do is to innovate in a way that challenges your current business model. New technologies can radically change business models. And if you're not open to that, you're going to get caught behind the eight ball. So how in your organization are you leaving space? And, and, and it can be very painful at first. I mean, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're used to selling hardware and software and, uh, you know, cloud computing comes along, you're going to think you're going to make less money because, People are going to buy fewer computers and you don't get as much money off of every unit sale in the cloud and they can only buy, you know, they can, they can buy it by the drink. They don't have to buy a capacity, a peak capacity. They buy, a, you know, the dynamic capacity. So, yeah, you'll make less money on each transaction, but the consumers in the end will consume more of it. And that's the opportunity you're going to get. But it's really hard for existing businesses to see that. So set up space where you are innovating, exploring innovation in ways that hurt your own business. If you don't do that and technology changes your business, you will end up a victim and you don't want to be that. Well, it sounds like you have, what you're describing is the philosophy that you uh, said earlier that you aim to yourself, that you have to let the cats herd you as well, which means be open to uh, change and be adaptable and flexible. Yes, very good, yes. Well, Stephen Hoover, CEO of Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, known as Xerox Park. Thank you so much for taking the time. This has been, this conversation has gone by just in a flash and you've, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. 
And to everybody who has been watching, we really appreciate it. And come back next week where we will be talking with the CIO, the Chief Information Officer for the City of Palo Alto. Thanks so much, everybody. Have a great week. Bye-bye.